Like many of you, I'm curious about several topics, and what better way to learn than to speak directly with the people who have the answers that you're looking for? My name is Costa. Welcome to Founder Views. That's what this channel is all about. You're going to hear me pick the brains of thought leaders, CEOs, politicians, and business experts about subjects that I'm thinking about or working on at any given time. From economics, business, real estate investing, Bitcoin, lifestyle, politics, and much, much more. Thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Andrew, how are you? It's great to meet you. Hey, thanks very much for having me on. Good to talk to you. Awesome. I was, I was very excited to, uh, to speak with you. Uh, how does it feel to, to sit on the other side of the mic answering questions instead of asking? <laughs> It's weird. In some ways, it's more liberating because I don't need to like have anything planned or prepared. But the downside of that is that I'm not like in control of the conversation. So you could like start grilling me on, you know, Cambodian rice tariffs and I'll just uh, look like an idiot. But but it's fun. I, I like a little bit of balance. Awesome. I love that. No, it'll it'll be a good, easy conversation, I'm sure, for you. Uh, so. First off, I really caught notice of your work uh, during the, the Freedom Convoy and the protests in Ottawa. You were one of the main sources of actual information for me about what was happening on the ground in Ottawa. Uh, and you really provided a great, accurate glimpse of what was going on. So uh, just a big compliment to you on that. I've been following your stuff ever since. And I uh, just want to let you know that you're doing a great job. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. And when you mentioned the convoy, that was an interesting turning point for, I'd say, independent media in general in Canada, mm -hmm. but certainly uh, the stuff that I've done and the stuff that True North does. A lot of people really did turn the channel on, I mean, literally or figuratively on their old media sources that they used to go to. And a lot of that was because they just didn't trust it anymore. So uh, we've been yeah. happy that a lot of those people that came on board then have, have stayed with us. So I appreciate for it. Very sure. Much. Yeah. And I want to get into some of that as well. But um so there's a lot going on right now, as you know, and uh, I don't want to get into the news cycle with you, but rather I want to talk to you about more just macro things happening in the world and specifically in Canada uh, and just get some of your insights on some topics that I think a lot of people will find interesting and valuable. So regarding the, the, the protests in Ottawa this past year and really, I, I think, a culmination of the last two years, really, with COVID uh, I think what has been evident for a lot of people, uh, which you sort of alluded to, is how biased and one-sided the legacy mainstream media is, which which is what most people consume, uh, mm -hmm. whether it's you know scrolling on Facebook, listening on the radio on the way to work, or feeds on Twitter. Uh, like most platforms that the average person consumes, I think the main information they're seeing is from big media corporations. Uh, but I do think a lot of people have realized how dishonest a lot of that is and, and just bias it is, especially in the last two years. So as an independent journalist, uh, how are you navigating through that media landscape? And th does that concern you at all? I, I don't know if it concerns me. I, I think it used to be the case that I, I would always be, and I think anyone in independent media would always be, really trying to, you know, jump up and down and wave our hands over and say, look at us, look at us, we're, we're doing good work. I mean, I started blogging in like 2008, 2009, when, you know, I don't really think anyone was doing it. And, and it ballooned very significantly in a couple of years to the point where uh, we would do 
things on my blog and then eventually I would do a podcast and this was gaining a pretty big audience because at the time there was this growing demand and, and not enough supply. And now you almost have the reverse problem where everyone has a podcast. Everyone's producing yeah. content online. Corporations are using podcasts to get their message out. News outlets, traditional news outlets are using new media to try to tap into the new media audience. But I think also now that I, I'm a bit more established and uh, certainly my platform is a bit more established, like I don't personally get hung up on numbers because I, I know that they're going up, they're, they're trending upwards. And I, I think that when you look at some of the research that's come out about trust in mainstream media, it's absolutely cratered. And I, I don't think it's coming back. The thing that I find more fascinating is why a lot of people who by their own admission don't trust the mainstream media still feel wedded to it. And I think a big part of that is that they don't trust anything. So they may not trust the mainstream media, but they also don't trust any alternatives yet. So there is yeah. still this, this stigma, for lack of a better term, that I think independent media has to get over, which will take time. But I, I think we are seeing that movement. And, and as I mentioned earlier, the convoy is one significant example where I think a lot of people did shake off from that. Like I had messages from people saying, yeah, I've been a subscriber of the Globe and Mail for 20 years and I've just canceled and now I'm donating to you guys monthly. And, and those were not infrequent. Yeah, I, I can totally see that. Why do you think the, the trust of the mainstream media has, has cratered, like you said? I mean, I'm sure it's, a, it's, it's like a, a snowball of like decades of happening, but um, like, what do you think has been like the, the driving catalyst, especially in the last maybe five, 10 years that has really turned the tide, you think? I think information has become a lot more democratized with the internet. I mean, it used to be we had all of these authorities on whatever, and you couldn't really fact check them if they were wrong. I mean, if I went to the library because I wanted to research something and I get a book and I see a fact in that book, I kind of accept at face value that fact. And, you know, no one challenges it unless maybe another book comes along. And you fast forward to the newspaper, the television, the radio, a lot of people who will consume any number of these media. And if they say something, you don't really have or historically have not had the ability to look it up and say, well, is that actually the case? So I think one big thing is that as technology has evolved, people have been able to start fact checking and going back and forth and realizing that, well, maybe this wasn't black and white. And, and I think bias itself, like bias has always been a feature of media and of journalists and of opinion makers and opinion leaders and all of this, obviously. But I don't think it was as apparent when people couldn't consume from as many sources as they could, because there's a cost to getting a newspaper delivered to your door. So uh, growing up, we had one newspaper, and that was our option. And I know other people as well that did one newspaper. And maybe some people would get a couple to get different perspectives. But uh, with the internet, when you're not paying for news content or not paying as much, you can actually see what does the Toronto Star say? What does the National Post say? What does the Globe and Mail say? What does you know, True North say? What does Rebel News say? What does your podcast say? And in doing that, people, I think, start to see that things are not as black and white. Yeah, totally agree. I think uh, kind of an ish issue with that that I see is I think to be properly informed nowadays, uh, it, it takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of time to like, you know, sift through all this information, like you said, instead of just relying on one uh, newspaper or article and just trying to validate information for yourself. 
that's that takes time that a, a lot of people don't have, right? Um, so, like, any any thoughts on that? Like, how do you how do you make that better for people or easier to consume, like actual real information? That I think is the biggest issue that that I would say we're up against is how do you get people to care? Um, because, you know, trust in media is one thing. Trust in institutions in general has gone down. People don't trust governments. People don't trust politicians. There's good reason for that. And I think one of the challenges you see there is that people just disengage from the process. They say, you know, what's the point of keeping up on the news if, you know, they're all going to behave this way? Or if I'm not going to vote, what's the point of, of learning about all their platforms? Stuff like that. Yeah. And you've seen media try to really dumb things down. And, you know, we, we see, for example, I can't remember the name of it, but there's this one company in the U.S. that made a, a big business of just distilling news stories down into like 60 second videos on Facebook. Mm. And uh, there have been a number of yeah, people yeah. that have done that as well. TikTok, Instagram Reels, Facebook Stories, all of these things are now used to tell the news. But, but anytime you shrink things down to deal with attention spans, which are short, you're losing context, you're losing background, you're losing information. So I find it interesting because... I'll, I'll do, for example, my show will sometimes be about, you know, 40 to 45 minutes long. And I'll post that and I'll get people commenting like, I don't have time for this. You should do like a three or four minute video and I'll watch that. And then you do a three or four minute video and people say, well, this isn't enough. I need like, I need a whole two hour conversation to understand what's happening here. So people in audiences have very different needs and very different demands and I think the challenge is that you can't do everything. You can't be everything to anyone. And I think that's still the area that a lot of people, myself included, have to navigate. Yeah, it, it's interesting. I, I think a question I have for you. So I think we all, ha all have, as humans, we have this, like, you know, everyone has a core belief, an ideology, you know, just the values that you have. Um, how do you filter out your own beliefs and ideologies as a journalist and just put out like unbiased information, maybe like inconvenient truths, depending on your, your own beliefs? Like how, how do you balance that? Uh, for me, to be honest, it's not as huge a deal for me because I work with a publication that has an editorial edge to it. And I think for me, my focus is being transparent about where I'm coming from and being transparent about what my view is to let the audience do that. But I also, at the same time, think, think that the facts speak for themselves. So I always tell people when you're reading news, try to go directly to the source. If someone's quoting a report, try to find the original report. If someone's quoting an interview, try to actually see the, the full interview. And, and sometimes it's remarkable how different the way something is characterized in a news story is from the source material that that journalist who wrote the story used. And I, I think for, for me, I always try to make that a bit easier for people. And it, it may be small. I don't know how many people are clicking through, but I always try to include the links in my stories uh, to the raw material that I'm using. I, I try to let uh, interviews, uh, interviews tell the story because that way people can see for themselves the exchange and the dialogue, instead of me having like a 30-minute phone conversation with someone yeah. and then plucking three sentences out that I want to quote or include in a package. So I think that for me is, is key, is, is let people know how I've arrived at the conclusion that I have. And if they want to go into a different place with it, that's completely fine. That's a, that's a good point for sure. You know, a lot of times you hear about like uh, unnamed sources and quotes <laughs> on people that like, do they exist? Who knows? And 
Yeah, well, that's yeah. the thing. You, you can't verify. I mean, if, yeah. if you look at scientific research, and I'm not a scientist by any stretch, but I learned this even in social sciences, doing political scientists, is that, you know, it has to be replicable. You have to be able to recreate someone's findings for it to be scientifically valid. You can't recreate a journalist's findings with unnamed sources that may or may not exist, or yeah. you don't know the context in which those sources came. And I'm not saying there isn't a place for anonymity, but that's the big challenge is that when a story comes out that is entirely predicated on someone that is not named, you cannot do your due diligence and verify or fact check any of it. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that could be a problem for sure. And, and I think we've seen that. Uh, I think something else that that should be concerning to a lot of people is censorship and, and how uh, people are being banned from platforms for reasons that I think are very questionable. Um, and again, I think a lot of people have also woken up to that as well and just seeing that, like what's wrong with that, um, especially with, with COVID as an example and you know how people were banned for saying many things that were perceived to be misinformation, but we're actually true all along. And, and there's a lot of those cases, which, you know, we don't have to get into, but as a journalist, uh, whose job is to inform people of the truth, like, does that does the censorship part concern you or make you feel like your livelihood is being compromised in some way from this bigger faction? So that seems to be controlling things. Yeah, it does. I, I mean, I am a libertarian, and I believe wholeheartedly that, you know, platforms don't owe anyone the right to be on them. So if one day, you know, YouTube were to say, uh, we don't think you should have a, a show on our channel, I, I would be very frustrated, and I would protest, and I would resist, and I would try to put some pressure on them. But I would understand as a private company, that is YouTube's right to do that. And the same goes for Facebook and, and Twitter, which, uh, by the way, this is a very contentious thing, even among people on the right, who, who a lot of them believe these things should be regulated like public utilities. But I'm not one of them. However, let, let me say that there are two forms of censorship. There, there's cultural censorship and there's government censorship. And both are problematic. Government censorship is, is I think, the most egregious because you don't really have a recourse to it. Uh, whereas, you know, if, if you're censored by a social media company, you can use a, another social media company, theoretically. The challenge to this, and, and if I'm trying to sort of check my own beliefs here and say, where is the problem? Where is the flaw in this? You have to look at when Donald Trump was banned from Twitter. Here was an idea. Here was an incident where Twitter says, we don't believe you should be on this platform anymore. And then all of a sudden, a lot of Trump supporters go over to Parler, which is this alternative created by uh, American conservatives. And then eventually the web host of Parler takes Parler yeah. offline. And the app stores that Parler was listed in, Apple and Google, take it out of their stores. And all of a sudden, this idea that conservatives have said and libertarians have said for years of, well, just if you don't like X, create Y... Yeah. We saw the the flaw of that and, and how difficult that is in, in practice. I, so I, I think that what we strive for legally, which is freedom of choice, should be different than what we strive for culturally, which is an attitude in which people embrace free speech, in which we embrace disagreement, in which we embrace having it out, and at the end of it, just recognizing each other's humanity. And the problem is, is that the legal doesn't matter if the culture is not there to support free speech. And I, I think it's important that we focus on these things that the liberal government are, are doing, like Bill C-11 and C-18 and whatever C-36 is going to be called when it's reintroduced. And, and these are you know, internet regulation bills that significantly change 
the makeup of the internet. Like these are very important bills and I am concerned about them, but I'm also more concerned about a society that welcomes this and a society that doesn't actually value free speech as much as it used to and as much as it needs to. Yeah, that, that's a perfect uh, segue because I wanted to ask you uh, about Bill C-11 as well. So uh, again, related to censorship, uh, we, so Bill C-11, it's an act to amend the Broadcasting Act. So can you explain in plain language, maybe for those who might not be familiar with it and uh, just describe uh, what it is and why a lot of people and journalists like yourself find it problematic? So C-11 at its core is fairly benign. It, it takes the Canadian Radio Telecommunications Commission, the CRTC, which regulates television and radio in this country, and expands it to online content creators. So it, it in the government's words, modernizes the CRTC, which was not made for the internet. So they're saying we now need to expand it to account for the fact that most people aren't getting their uh, broadcast content from the television and internet or uh, from the television and radio. So at its core, that's what they're trying to do. But you have to go a step beyond that. And, and there are two key aspects of this, which is why people have been criticizing it. The first is that the CRTC mandates Canadian content. And they have a limit, uh, basically, or a threshold that uh, must be published for Canadian content on TV and radio. And they're trying to now take that and put it on the internet as well. So that YouTube, Netflix, perhaps even True North, perhaps your platforms, they will all have to showcase an, a certain amount of Canadian content or what the government mandates is Canadian content. And that means that you actually, as a consumer of news content, don't, act, don't anymore have the right to decide for yourself what you see um, because the government is, is curating it in a certain way. The other part of it, and this is the, the more stringent aspect of this, is licensing. You need to, I cannot just go outside and set up an antenna and say, I've set up Andrew Radio because I need to get a license from the government. I need to get authorization to use the frequencies. And the reason for that historically is that you can't have a free for all when there are only a certain number of frequencies available on television and radio. That was the rationale for that. With the internet, for internet service providers, yes, there is that issue. But for internet content, we effectively have unlimited bandwidth, effectively. So that means that anyone, anyone can set up a YouTube channel, a website, a blog, and we can compete with each other. And as a consumer, you decide. What the government's policy could do is start putting licensing in place where you actually need a license to operate. And there, this is going to be the key. So someone like me could actually be forced to get a license, which means I have to do regulatory compliance when what I do is taking place entirely in a space that's unregulated now. Yeah. Interesting. Um, so like if I post something, let's just say that the government or the CRTC deems like inappropriate, like you can definitely by definition technically be punished for that. Is that. So this is where this, this, and this is where a lot of the, the, the bill is still unclear because the bill says that we're going to introduce this infrastructure 
and then later on the CRTC will come up with regulations. So you don't actually know how it's going to be regulated until the bill passes, which I, I think Got is it. a big danger. But we do know there's another bill that's coming out. And in, in the last parliament, it was C-36. If you want to look it up, you can. Uh, it's going to be reintroduced, and we don't know what number it's going to be. But this is a bill that will regulate what they call online hate. And there was another companion bill that the government had talked about, which was basically something that would force social media companies to take down content that the government believed was hate speech. And the, the definition of hate speech is very key. So in this case, yes, the government would be able to look to social media companies and say, you need to zap that, you need to zap that, you need to zap that. Or social media companies more likely would be looking at this and saying, we don't want to deal with the government, so we're just going to preemptively censor this and preemptively shut that down. And in that case, it, it's, it's important to look at all of these things as, as being part of a series of bills, because C-11 introduces the regulatory framework to really give government control over the internet. But all of these other measures are indicative of how they want to use that power and how they want to wield that authority. Mm -hmm. So, so, so Bill C-11, essentially, the way it's framed right now, just leaves the door open for regulation that we're not really sure of. But the way it's framed right now, it could theoretically, um, you know, lead to regulations that is very restrictive. Is that in essence? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, think of all the regulations that exist around television and radio and now expand those to the Internet. Yeah, got it. Yeah, it's uh, concerning stuff. So, so you mentioned a few other bills as well. And I wanted to ask you, like, are, are there any other and you mentioned C-36 being introduced, but um, are there any other bills that are concerning to you that are currently in the process or talks about being in the process? Uh, doesn't have to be about media, but really about anything that you're aware of that concerns you as a Canadian. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, it's an open-ended question, and I'm assuming by design. I, I mean, there are things that I care about as far as the oil and gas sector that I mm. would uh, bring up there. There are things I care about. I mean, assisted suicide is, is one. In the last parliament, there was a bill that expanded assisted suicide eligibility to people with mental illness. And as someone who is a, a suicide survivor and someone who's dealt with mental illness, this I, I found very concerning, that you know, this previous longstanding uh, convention and law that if someone is trying to kill themselves, we help them, has now been replaced by a government that says, if, if, if I were to, you know, 12 years ago, when I had tried to kill myself, go to a doctor and say, I'm, you know, trying to end my life, I need help, they'd say, okay, we'll help you do it. And, and mm -hmm. that, I, I think, is a huge thing. And I mean, very different than media. And when the government put that in place, they said they were going to do consultations to ensure it wasn't abused. And this has not actually yielded anything. So all of the concerns that people raised when this bill was being put forward have been proven true. And, and that one, mm. again, very off topic, but that one. Yeah. Yeah. Me. No, it was open-ended and yeah. Um, fair game. You, you mentioned, so B C36, you said that one's going to be reintroduced. We don't know what number it is. Um, but you, you, so this could essentially is this the one that could essentially force social media uh, or government to force social media companies to remove content that they deem is hate speech or is that C, another so c36 was the hate speech bill which okay. uh, it didn't force social media companies to do the removal it, it just basically made it a, an offensive human rights law to okay. communicate electronically hate speech. So to post something on the internet, there was another bill and I can't remember the number of that or, or where it came up that would have 
uh, effectively empowered social media companies. It would have deputized social media companies to enforce C36. And I, I okay. can't remember what that was, but the government has said that one will be coming back. Yeah. And, and is the definition, because you mentioned the definition of hate speech is key. Is that, is the definition currently, um, has it changed? Is it in the process of being changed or? Yeah, so what they the term they used is likely to foment detestation or vilification. Likely to likely. foment detestation okay. or vilification. So mm. uh, it not not that it fomented detestation or right. vilification, that it was likely to. So you could be prosecuted under this for speech that someone says may be hateful and may cause hate, which is one of the big concerns. So and just to to give a bit of history on this, there was a hate speech bill or a hate speech law on the books that was this one's modeled after up until about 2013. And it was removed by the former conservative government in large part because of concerns that it was yielding censorship. And, and this section of the Human Rights Act was used to go after bloggers and authors and radio hosts. And it had a very, very high conviction rate. And what people need to realize is that hate speech was already illegal in Canada and is to this day illegal under the criminal code. This set a new threshold, which was lower. And it was yeah. used for, for commentary and content that was not hate speech, that was not violent, that wasn't threatening, that, that was, you know, by the government's own measure, falling short of the criminal threshold. Hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, um, that's a dangerous definition that likely, and like, who's responsible for determining likely, right? That's, that's the big, big problem. Um, so when you look at the things we discuss, right, you know, bias in the media, censorship, these concerning bills, uh, what in your like, what does that tell you about the country that Canada is becoming? I think we are increasingly seeing the state take on more of a central role in our lives. And, you know, economically, a lot of people expected and invited. A lot of people say, yeah, so, you know, I'd love the government to pay for my dental care, even if that means the government's taxing you more and managing dental care. People would say, well, yeah, I'd love the government to control a pharmacare program so I don't have to pay for drugs. And, and I think it becomes easier. And people are struggling right now. People have financial hardships. So the idea of government swooping in and taking over large areas of our lives is, is actually quite comforting to people in certain yeah. circumstances. I, I understand that statist impulse economically. But what we're seeing now is, is that when you license the government to be the central planners of your economy, you're also licensing government to be the central planners of your lives. And it, it's not a big leap to get from, we're going to control your bank accounts, basically. I don't mean that in a literal sense. Although, I mean, with the trucker convoy, yes, I guess I do mean it. Could in make a the argument, sense. yeah. But you know, we're we're going to control, uh, you know, your 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 fiscal management, and then you get to we're going to control your speech. We're going to control the content you consume throughout the entirety of COVID. We're we're going to control your family dinners. We're going to control your church attendance. And I think that really this is part of a, a gradual that's not become gradual anymore shift towards government becoming more central to people's lives. And I think, you know, in large part, when you license the government to do this on economic stuff, you're, you're licensing it to do it on much more uh, broader things. 
That's a really good point. I like how you, I like how you describe that about, you know, it is very comforting for people, for, for government to come in and, and help out and be that centralized authority, especially right now in times of economic hardship. But I think the, the ultimate problem with, with that is, and again, what you're seeing with these examples is that it's, it's slowly, you know, infringing on, you know, little things piece by piece that a lot of times people don't even see or realize. And, uh, by the time they do, maybe it, it'll be too late, right? And so that's, um, I like how you describe that. Um, yeah, so did you? you no, no, go ahead. Yeah. I was just trying to come up with something there because I thought you wanted me to. So go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think um, I think what you're doing is, is, is very important work. And when I, you know, when I take a step back and think about what I just said, like what you're doing is very important work, which which should be obvious, right? I think, uh, of course, a journalist is doing important work, but I think the type of journalism that you're doing, which is simply informing people of accurate information without any spin, uh, unbiased, and, and th I think that type of honest reporting is kind of considered threatening in a way to bigger media corporations for, for some reason. So I think you're definitely doing your part to make uh, the people of this country more informed and more educated, which is great. And, and I think an informed and educated uh, public is the fabric for a, a positive and long lasting and prosperous society. So what can others do uh, to help achieve this prosperous society for ourselves, our kids, you know, people who don't have the platform like you do. Um, any, any insights, thoughts on that? Hmm. Well, first off, thank you. I mean, truly for the, for those very kind words. I, I think that I, I would challenge your claim that we don't all have the platform. We have different platforms, but I think the whole nature of the social media age is that everyone has a platform in, in some way. I mean, you know, new media, independent media, we live or die based on people sharing our stuff. We don't have a government subsidy to rely on. I mean, you look at CBC, CBC gets $1.4 billion a year and has a very small audience to show for that. If, I forget the exact numbers for their newscast, but it's been in decline over and over and over again. And some of their scripted shows you look at are similarly in, in a pretty bad place as far as ratings are concerned. So they don't actually need to prove their relevance to Canadians. Whereas I do. I mean, if I just do a show one day and, you know, everyone says, oh, this is terrible. I don't want to listen to it. I'm probably not going to get paid to do shows for all that much longer. And True North itself, if we have all of these different things that are that we're working on that are not being consumed by people for whatever reason, then that's going to be something that is going to limit our ability to get donations, which we need to, to keep going. And I, to go back to the social media problem, a lot of companies have had uh, some pretty significant uh, barriers put in place because social media companies have, uh, you know, tweak, tweaked their algorithm, for example, and they can't actually get any eyes eyeballs on, on what they're doing. But, but to go back to, to where I started on this, we're, we're seeing now the big challenge here in that, I need people to share the work that I'm doing. If you don't host your own show, that's fine. Share other shows. They're not just mine, also yours, also some of the other people that are doing this, that are in this space of various sizes. And, and that's where I think we all do have a platform because, you know, I meet people all the time that have said, you know, I, I, I just learned of True North or I just learned of your show last week and I'm hooked. 
And I'm like, well, I've been doing it for, for years. Where I mean, where were you? But then I sort of take a step back and realize that, yeah, not everyone is as plugged in as I am. Not everyone is as yeah. plugged in as you are. Not everyone is as plugged in as like the news junkies that, you know, are reading every newspaper and, you know, watching every TV newscast and all of that. So I, I think if you value this perspective or even this idea of non-corporate media, you do have a platform in the sense that you might have your own Facebook page, your own Twitter page, and you can share content. I mean, certainly you can donate. That's a very, very valuable way to show your support. But I think more fundamentally, if the frustration is that only one perspective is being represented in society, you have, I, I would say, a moral duty to make sure that your perspective is, is not silenced. And, and this is difficult for people because there are consequences for speaking out. There are consequences for being honest. Uh, but but at the same time, there are also huge consequences for not doing that. So it, it's uh, uh, another amazing segue. Something that I'm thinking of now is uh, the, and I totally agree with everything you said. And sharing is just like a, a very simple way that, uh, you know, simple way people can 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 help you know inform others and help people inform people close to them, friends, family, and things like that. But uh, to push back on that or just play devil's advocate a bit, I, I think there are a lot of people who have certain views or who want to share, who love the content you're putting out, but are afraid to speak out about them or share it for the fear of being you know, labeled or, or, or being an outcast. And uh, why do you think that is and, and what can be done to change that? So we live in a society where we can share alternative views and have different opinions uh, without this feeling of being attacked or losing your job or, you know, whatever. I think one big, well, it's a really difficult question because I can give the answer I was going to give, which is that, you know, we all just have to stand up and do it. You know, that, that you know, we are not passengers in society. It is, you know, us, we the people build the society and create the society. So we can't say that the society is one way and we're another way because we, we can have a, a say in that. But, but I also realize the naivete of that because the institutions in society keep the power imbalanced. Whereas, you know, someone as an individual might have a lot less power than another individual who happens to own a media station or another individual who happens to be a member of parliament. And and, and it is incredibly difficult. I mean, we have corporations that are putting wokeness above what has always been their fiduciary obligation to shareholders and saying, you know, we're going to fire you if, if you say this, even if that has nothing to do with your job. There was, when the convoy happened, people who were fired because they donated to this yeah. legal protest, they donated to this convoy. And it is challenging. And, and I think that we have to accept that there is going to be pain anyway, no matter what. And, and this is so difficult for people to wrap their heads around because no one wants to be a martyr. The whole point here is that some people want to live their lives and not deal with politics. And, and I think the reason vaccine mandates were so galvanizing is because they really made it unavoidable for some people to avoid politics. People that had, you know, didn't even vote in some cases were like, wait, all of a sudden you're telling me I'm, I'm not allowed to go to work unless I get vaccinated. Or all of a sudden you're saying I can't go on a plane. Like, I, I just wanted to be left alone. I didn't, I didn't want anything. I, I, I didn't have any demands. I wasn't trying to do anything. I wasn't trying to make any changes politically, but now you've pushed me into a corner. And I think that's the challenge here is that if you just let the status quo 
continue to be in existence, you're going to lose anyway. Yeah. And, and to me, that's like kind of the most concerning part. I think uh, the reality is that the vast majority of people, um, you know, feel that it's easier to just go with the status quo and, and comply and just do things of, of whatever is expected of them, even if they don't necessarily believe in it, uh, you know, by their expected of them from their job or their society or their peers. And um, yeah, I think overall, that's, um, I feel like that's the majority of people. Maybe I'm wrong, but I think that's, that's concerning. Yeah, it is. And, and I think that for, for a lot of people, for a lot of people that we have in this country right now that are not, I don't even want to say apolitical. I mean, they're people that, they're not dumb. They, they, they peripherally pay attention, but the kind of people who, yeah, I'll vote if I have time, those sorts of people, where it's not a central part of their identity, but they're not against it. They're not against engagement. They're the ones that are so key because because they're the ones who make or break elections. If, if you can motivate these people uh, to vote for you or motivate these people to vote against your opponent, they're they're the ones who sway elections. It's that, that group of not just the undecideds, but the ones who who will show up if they have a reason to. And I think that there's a lesson in that, which is that all of us right now need to look around and say, we, we, we've got to show up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, have you heard of, of the, uh, the, the medical term or term uh, mass psychosis? I've, I, to be honest, I, I've seen this circulate. I, I've literally, I know nothing other than the term. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, I, I was just curious to, to get your opinion on that, but uh, well, well, if you explain it, I'll give you my opinion. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm not a scientist or expert either, but essentially the, the concept is uh, like mass psychosis. Um, essentially, so there's four pillars to mass psychosis. I forget the person's name who who came across this, but, it, you know, there was, was a lot it, Was of, it Robert Malone or was he uh, someone? It wasn't else? Robert Malone. Uh, okay. I know he has talked about it, but it was, it was someone else from Europe who, who sort of coined this medical term, like a psychologist. Uh, and there's just a lot of parallels with it, uh, with COVID, about periods of isolation with people, uh, taking things away that people enjoy doing, um, uh, having like a central authority, like provide one solution, this constant sense of anxiety and fear. And like all these things combined lead to something called mass psychosis, which essentially is, is essentially psychosis and people kind of being brainwashed to follow like this one linear solution to what you're experiencing. Um, that's sort of, I, I probably butchered <laughs> the explanation <laughs> But, no, uh, it, sound, it sounded good to me. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I think I think you're right, and, and I, I think that COVID has really broken people's minds. Like it, it really has brought out the very worst in in a lot of people, and, and it's quite difficult because it's brought out the control freak in some people. It's brought out the fear monger in some people. It, it's brought out the you know at the beginning for a couple of weeks that sense of community, and then that all just went to went to hell very quickly. Uh, because people were really trying to exploit each other and, you know, economic exploitation, free, the exploitation of people's freedoms, of people's good nature. And I, I think it really did break something. And, and yeah. I don't know if that's going to be mended. I think so, too. I think uh, like whether mass psychosis, this is like a, an actual thing. Uh, but I, I do think when you take a step back, like in the last two years, like it, the society has been impacted uh, very much psychologically um, through, you know, lockdowns, losing jobs, not seeing people. Um, and I think that that does have um, a deeper impact than I think 
people are are paying attention to. Um, yeah, I would yeah. agree with that, and and I think that you know I go back to what I mentioned earlier, which is that for a lot of people who just want to be left alone, it, it's been challenging because you know COVID has really eliminated that ability for for people to just live their lives w- without interference and without intervention. So it's been it's been kind of the the libertarian nightmare in a way because uh, <laughs> yeah. you you lose religious freedom, you use the right to free assembly, you use the right lose the right to peaceful protest. You lost economic freedom if your business was shut down. The ability as a consumer to go to certain stores and and you know, I, I think it's easy to focus on, and I, I have for much of the last two and a half years, focus on the government response to this. But I, I do think for years to come, we need to explore what you've just raised there, which is the the human response to this, the psychological response to it. You know, it, it's not just about what government did. It's, it's also about the people that invited that in and in some yeah. cases wanted more control over their lives, wanted their freedoms to be restricted even more. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Are you are you optimistic for Canada's future? I am optimistic about people and people in Canada and Canadians' future. And I think that there has been in the last year in particular a shift that I've observed, and it's anecdotal, of course, but people I've talked to have observed it as well, as people that went along with the controlling stuff and the fear-mongering stuff, and then something twigged in them, and they realized, you know what, I, I can't live like this. I've had enough of this. And people really started to reclaim their own identity and their own liberty and their own choices. And and this happened, I mean, for some people, it was the convoy. For other people, it's been it's been other things that have happened. And I, I mean, the term that is contentious because, you know, men's rights activists use it as red pilling. So it's like people that, you know, say one day they like from the Matrix, they they took the red pill and, you know, now they see the world as it is. And I think that I, I have faith that people eventually realize the conditions they need to succeed and the conditions they need to thrive. Your question was, am I optimistic about Canada? And And Canada is a, a country filled with Canadians. Canada is also an institutional government and, you know, bureaucracy and, and set of, you know, universities and media companies and politicians and all of that. And and I'm, I'm very pessimistic about that aspect of it, but I also Mm -hmm. think all of these things are downstream of where the people are. So I, I guess, yes, I'm optimistic, but I think that the people need to reclaim their own autonomy first before anything else at the political level can change for the better. Yeah. Well said. I like that answer. Um, and I think a good place uh, to start for a lot of people is, uh, which I want to ask you, like, who, who are so who are some of your favorite uh, journalists or, or places to get information? Other than yourself, of course. Well, I have to just uh, do the obligatory plug of my, my colleagues at True North. I mean, in yeah. particular, we just uh, brought on recently Rupa Subramanya, who's done tremendous, tremendous work. She's a, a National Post columnist. And she's she's actually speaking of just to, to diver, digress for a moment. She's a fascinating example of what I was just talking about, because this time one year ago, she was tweeting about how we need to like, you know, we can't force people to be vaccinated. So let's put in vaccine mandates to make it really uncomfortable to be wow. unvaccinated. And, and mm-hmm. she was doing this because she thought this was the way we get to a country that is able to move beyond the pandemic. And you fast forward now 
And she's one of the most vocal and I would say significant critics of vaccine mandates in Canada, because in the last 12 months, she saw the situation change and she started to realize. And we talked about this on, on my show a, a few weeks ago, Rupa and I, that, you know, the government w was that the science didn't say what the government said it did. And when she realized that she uh, adjust, you know, adjusted and, you know, uh, evaluated her position and then moved on. And I, I think that Rupa is a great example of where you can have a truly independent thinker in media. And she works with mainstream media as well. She writes in the National Post. So she's not someone that's just like relegated to some corner of the internet. Uh, there are lots of good people. I mean, I, I've been a, a longtime fan and friend of Mark Stein, who's Canadian born, but in the US as well. And then we also have uh, people like Rex Murphy that are doing great work and, you know, other independent outlets like Ezra yeah. Levant, I've known for many years. And he's created in Rebel News a business model for media in the 21st century that is thriving. And I, th I think everyone should be looking at that. Even if you don't agree with the political uh, take that Rebel has, just look at the fact that they've created this business model. So I, there are lots of good people and, and I don't even want to start listing them because then I know I'm going to forget others. Yeah. So I gave a few examples. Fair there. enough. Awesome. Appreciate that. Um, you also uh, wrote a book recently, right? Freedom Convoy. <laughs> What's, uh, tell us about it. What, what's it, what's it about and, and what does it cover? So, well, it's about the freedom convoy and it covers the freedom, freedom convoy, but uh, to give more than that, I, so I covered for true North, the freedom convoy in Ottawa, uh, starting remotely, just as this thing was gaining steam and heading towards Ottawa. And then I knew as this was happening and we saw the footage of people lining overpasses, uh, lining shoulders of roads, cheering this thing on. This is going to be big. This is yeah. a, this is a significant thing. And so I, I said, I'm going to go to Ottawa. And I was there for a few days covering the Freedom Convoy's arrival in the, those first few days in Ottawa. And then, you know, our team continued to cover it. And we, when this thing ended, there was so much more that hadn't been told. And there was so much more to the story that I saw. Like I had gone back to Ottawa at the end of the convoy. And, and what I wanted to do was write a longer form a piece of journalism that really looked into the operational side of it. So how these people were running their operation, how they were fueling the trucks, how they were getting food, what was happening to money when bank accounts mm -hmm. kept getting frozen and, and stuff like that. And I had started to write that, but then the Emergencies Act came in. And then all of a sudden, this protest became, you know, about the police action more than anything else. So I didn't get to write that story. But afterwards, I, I still felt, you know, there was so much that I wish people knew about this. So I, I kept saying to a friend of mine, you know, someone's got to write a book about this. I want to read a book about this. And, uh, you know, at a certain point, he told me to shut up and write it myself. So, so I did. And the book is really ab about the behind the scenes aspect of this protest that whether you liked it or not was absolutely monumental in Canada and I would argue around the world. Uh, I, I agree. I, I still have to pick up my copy and I'll do so right after we, we finish up here for sure. Uh, that's definitely on my list. And uh, Andrew, if, if people wanted to uh, learn more about you, uh, follow you, where's the best place they can do that online? So I, I, I'm, I, I'm like a true millennial in that I can't focus on anything. So I kind of exist everywhere on the internet and nowhere at the same time. So uh, True North, which I've plugged a lot, is where I do the bulk of my work. It's at uh, tnc.news. I also have my own substack at andrewlawton.substack.com. And you can find all of it on uh, Twitter where I am at Andrew Lawton. And I, I try to link, link to all of my work there. Awesome, awesome. 
Andrew, I don't want to take up more of your time. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Uh, keep up the incredible work for sure for, for all of us Canadians and uh, love what you're doing. So uh, thank you for that and look forward to connecting again for sure. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on.